Trump promises to boost US military spending, but why is China being left out in the cold? Plus, is it time to stop investigating Iraq abuse claims? I don't know what motivated Phil Shiner, but the damage that man has caused, a trail of human concern, worry, misery. Donald Trump's mantra may be America first, but that isn't stopping his administration making quite an impression elsewhere. The president's national security adviser has put Iran on notice. Trump has sanctioned the first operation by US special forces on the ground in Yemen, and his defence secretary has been to the Far East. James Mattis's main job was to reassure allies like South Korea and Japan that whatever candidate Trump may have said, President Trump will be a steadfast friend but one country is not feeling the love. For while Mr Trump has spoken to dozens of world leaders, walked hand in hand with Theresa May and dismissed his conversation with Australia's Prime Minister as the worst phone call ever, he hasn't found the time to speak to the Chinese president. And while Xi Jinping probably isn't staring forlornly at a silent phone, it's not a mission from Mr Trump's phone book. Well, Scott Lucas is a professor of American studies at the University of Birmingham. Hello, Scott. Um, Donald Trump couldn't stop talking about China on the campaign trail. You would have thought he'd have been straight on the phone. Well, Donald Trump is a man who chases shiny objects, and right now he's chasing the courts over the Muslim ban. And what I say by that is that China policy or the China approach is really being pursued by others right now, including the Defense Secretary, James Mattis, who you mentioned, and indeed those in the State Department. So there's been an unexpected stability in the U.S. approach to China in recent weeks, not because of Mr. Trump, but despite Mr. Trump. Yeah, despite Mr. Trump, because he angered the Chinese by taking a congratulatory call from Taiwan's leader, even though the U.S. has no formal diplomatic relations with Taiwan, which China considers part of its territory. Exactly. I mean, that, that's a red line because it, it sort of threatens the one China policy that Beijing pursues. And U.S. officials have let it be known since then they're not going to try to destabilize that policy, which has really been maintained since the 1970s. But I think the other aspect of Mattis's trip, which is very interesting, is that the U.S. really accepted the Chinese red line on the South China Sea, whereas Mattis talked very tough about East China, reassuring the Japanese and South Korea. He indicated that the U.S. doesn't want a confrontation in South China Sea where we have had tension in recent months over, for example, the Chinese building offshore islands and over exercises by both sides. Mm. So he sends his defence secretary to reassure South Korea, Japan and making those noises about Chinese actions in the South China Sea, but he's not engaging directly. Does it matter? I, I think it's better for all of us if he doesn't engage directly right now. I say that for two reasons. I don't have much faith in President Trump when he is hands-on. Uh, witness, for example, the way his phone call went with uh, the Australian Prime Minister, mm. uh, Malcolm Turnbull, witness how his phone calls have gone with other European leaders. And that leads to the second element here. The Chinese don't want that phone call right now. They're worried that it would leak to the media because a lot of things have leaked out of this White House and it could be embarrassing. What Trump has done, or rather what his staff have done uh, in the last 24 hours is they've sent a congratulations letter on the occasion of Chinese New Year. Hmm. That has been favorably received by the Chinese. 
And it's more those types of steps rather than a high-profile phone call that I think are the way to conduct relations. Right mm, yes. Also with us this week, as ever, is BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Um, so uh, Trump's chief advisor, Steve Bannon, said last year there was no doubt the U.S. would go to war with China within 10 years because of the South China Sea. Bannon's now on the National Security Council. So um, what he's saying there carries quite a bit of weight. It it. It means he's there because the, 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 the president wants him to be there and therefore he will listen to him. Perhaps he'll listen to him far more than other people. Can I just put this context uh, together on how, say, China sees Trump, which is the important thing, because we all think, you know, Trump is erratic and he's difficult to figure. If you go around the, um, the embassies in London at the moment, the uh, slightest thing and just meeting people... They're all asking, what does your government think about Trump? What is the Foreign Office saying? And they go into the Foreign Office as well, and they're saying, what are you saying? I have never seen, and this is in 25 years doing this sort of thing, I have never seen so much single uh, intent on gathering information about a president, which most of them would in past times have actually sort of, they'd have got that very carefully through the elections etc. Mm. They're still not certain what they've got. Now the other thing is, it is in the end of the day, it's the information that goes back, let us say to, to the Chinese Politburo or its equivalent that is the stuff that's put together and that's what they sort of hold fire what on. What kind of information would be going back to that Politburo? What does he mean? Bureau. Yeah. What does he mean? Who is advising him? When are they advising him? What sort of things that interest him? What sort of things can he take in? What sort of rates of information can he take in? Does he change his mind? Where? Wh- what does he think of us? Does he know anything about us? Does he? I mean, simple things. As, as somebody from the Chinese embassy here said uh, said to me, he said, "Does does does do you think the president knows where Beijing is? Hmm. Because." If you're in Beijing, it's very important. You know where it is, and is the context of people and what they're talking about. One of the biggest countries in the world, and do you understand the complexities of the organisation? Uh, and what about North Korea? What does he think about North Korea? They're asking about Japan at the moment a lot, and they're saying, is there a sense that that Mr. Trump could say to the Japanese, why don't you arm yourselves with a few nuclear warheads and you can keep North Korea intact? And that's how they're saying it. So this information pile is probably the most important thing that's going on at the moment in in terms of who likes and who doesn't, who trusts and who doesn't trust Trump. Scott Lucas, do you think there are enough people in the White House with the knowledge of the situation, the geopolitical landscape, to to stop Donald Trump or Bannon blundering into some kind of crisis? It really depends on who wins the institutional battle. Uh, As you pointedly noted by quoting Steve Bannon, this is a person who would tear up the rule book at least over the last 40 years and how to approach China. But he faces some very powerful figures, not only General Mattis as the head of the Pentagon, but the career military officers who are there. And although they are overshadowed at the moment because of a vacuum of power, many experienced State Department people as well. If the State Department and Pentagon, and if the Treasury as well, maintain stability, we're in good shape. If Bannon, who uh, more importantly, is uh, on the Principals Committee of the National Security Council, which is the real decision-making body. If Bannon can push through his vision of confrontation with China, 
it's time to batten down the hatches. Mm. Scott, stay with us. Now, as we mentioned last week, James Mattis was busy on public relations duty for President Trump. But now the US Defence Secretary has an even bigger job on his hands. By the start of March, the Pentagon is due to prepare budget plans for the rest of this year after Donald Trump promised to load up the military with kit. He was speaking a few days ago at US Central Command in Florida. We will make a historic financial investment in the armed forces of the United States and show the entire world that America stands with those who stand in defense of freedom. We have your back every hour, every day, now and always. And after previously dismissing NATO as obsolete, the president had more reassuring words for America's allies. We strongly support NATO. We only ask that all of the NATO members make their full and proper financial contributions to the NATO alliance, which many of them have not been doing. Many of them have not been even close. Well, Scott Lucas is still with me, as is Christopher Lee. Uh, Scott, Donald Trump has this three-stage plan to boost the military, growing the Army, Air Force and Navy, supposedly to take on a, a broad range of threats. I'm not sure it's a real joined-up plan at this point. Uh, the threats, or at least the potential threats, are clearly out there. But dealing with the Islamic State is different from dealing with Russia, is different from dealing with China. I think what we're seeing actually is a more practical approach right now, and that is a proposal for about a 5% increase in the defense budget, and more importantly, and I think what has been missed by people, lifting the cap on military spending, which was imposed during the Obama years through a process called sequestration. During the American recession, uh, it was important to limit the increase in defense spending because it makes over half of American discretionary spending. That's why this ceiling was put in place, and if that ceiling is removed, it gives the potential mm. for defense spending to increase much more significantly. And Christopher, there's an extra $100 billion on officer. Presumably a lot of that might go astray in places where defense spending wins votes. Anybody who's watched the defense budget move, mm. and you find that things that have been promised, you know, they never get there or they're not spent or whatever, but they often do. There will be beautiful well, planes, this... though, beautiful, shiny new planes. Uh, yeah. What you've got to understand with what happens in America, for example, um, a defense budget is normally published, or the ambitions of defense spending and acquisition are published uh, sort of about the third week in January. They then have to go to the Hill and people have to fight for them. And that quite often goes right round to the fall before that's, that's settled. In for, in for example, a lot of the defence budget didn't, that was in the Obama budget didn't actually get there, and so they're still fighting over that. <laughs> when it goes to the Hill, you get into that gleeful expression, pork barrelling. There isn't a senator, there isn't a congressman or congresswoman that hasn't got some sort of defence team or a defence uh, business uh, in, in their constituents. And so, therefore, they've got to go back to their constituents saying this is what we got out of the defence budget. And that's all part of what's going on at the moment. And how does this all filter through to the British military? Um, it's very important, for example, uh, we're doing things together. Uh, F-35s, British buying F-35s, uh, which is an American aircraft. But you just don't buy the aeroplane and say, OK, we gave and you build it, we'll buy it. Uh, lots of the F-35 come from British defence uh, businesses. And that's the way you do it. It's a joint production in many ways, although it's an American aircraft. And that goes right up to the, the total component, for example, from, from Trident. But there's a lot of American composition in, uh, in the two aircraft carriers that have been built at the moment. And it's also joint training. 
that costs money as well. So what the Americans spend on, not so much what they spend on how much they spend, but what it's been spending, what they're spending on. The British have actually got more than a passing interest in what's going into into that defence budget, the final acquisition. Well, Admiral Sir Jonathan Band is a former First Sea Lord, and he told us he can see parallels between Donald Trump's ambitious military expansion plans and Theresa May's talk of a global post-Brexit Britain. The whole language of the Prime Minister about being strong and independent and around the world, I mean, that is code for a naval policy. <laughs> that is a maritime strong policy. You know, the fact that our Secretary of State said in January, this is you know, the decade for the Navy, and it is, because we need a Navy uh, to start to have influence around the world uh, in a way that we haven't been doing for the last 15 years because we've been involved in campaigns uh, ashore in Iraq and Afghanistan. So politically, it's the right moment to invest in the Navy. I think if you're going to play a slightly independent role, but very much globally connected, then a Navy is a very good instrument because you can use a Navy in peacetime in a way you can't use armies and air forces. Now, whether Mr. Trump is, 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 is on the same tune, I, I'm not sure. It's so early in, the, in his presidency. We haven't yet seen a, um, you know, his, his first um, defence policy going to the Congress or anything like that. What he says doesn't surprise me. That sort of independent flair has a sort of maritime flavour to it. We've all been involved in these terribly attritional wars, which have cost us a lot of money, whose... Um, effect is at best marginal <laughs> and so I don't think people want to put their fingers in the pie anymore and, and navies are quite a good way of having influence but with razor sharp capability if, when you surgically want to employ it at a place and time of your choosing. That was the former First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Jonathan Band. Uh, Christopher, if the US Navy is being expanded, good for Britain. It is good for Britain, but you've also, again, put this in the context of where it's expanded, what sort of things the expansion comes. We could remember also that a lot of the um, the the, the, um, the United States Navy, certainly, for example, where you where at any one time you want, let's say, sort of seven or eight aircraft carriers at sea, a lot of the money that goes in is just the maintenance of, of, of carriers at sea and also the gathering and training of manpower. But you put a carrier at sea, the US Navy puts somewhere in the region of 14 other vessels to each carrier. And that's the sort of thing that you have to look at the budget and say, well, is that okay for us? But then you look at joint operations. I mean, for example, last week there was an operation in the, in, in the Gulf, the Iranian Gulf, where a, a British Commodore was leading... The Iranian Gulf. Yeah. Yes, was leading the um, well, as opposed to the Persian Gulf, was was leading the uh, leading the operation there with American uh, uh, American ships as well, American officers. You've got to maintain that size of fleet of flotillas of deployments, but you've also got to work together all the time. And so, anything the American Navy does, the Royal Navy looks at it and says, where do we fit in? Because they're sure there will be a place. And then you take it to the next mm. stage, which is which is NATO. And so you've got things like SACLAND, Supreme Ally Commander Atlantic. You've got you've got a mixture of forces. And so it's not just a, bi a, a, a bilateral sort of one Navy and the United States Navy. Mm. Chris, will stay with us. Uh, Scott Lucas, Professor of American Studies at the University of Birmingham. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, still to come, years after the drawdown, could more British troops be sent back to Afghanistan? 
It's close to seven years since the Iraq Historical Allegations Team was set up to investigate claims of abuse by British forces in the country. This weekend, a report is expected to say it should be scrapped. It comes a week after discredited lawyer Phil Shiner was struck off for misconduct. His firm was behind around two-thirds of IHAT's caseload. Well, earlier this week, former army captain turned MP Johnny Mercer, who's chairing the committee investigating IHAT, asked the Prime Minister to get a grip on the process. Those who serve on the front line deserve our support when they get home, and I can assure my honourable friend of the government's commitment to that. I, all troops facing uh, allegations receive legal aid from the government with the guarantee that this will not be claimed back. In relation to IAT, which he has specifically uh, referred to, we are re- committed to reducing its caseload to a small number of credible cases as quickly as possible. And I recognise that the action that has been taken in relation to the individual that he has referred to, I think it is absolutely appalling when people try to make a, uh, a business out of chasing after our brave troops. Well, General Sir Mike Jackson became Chief of the General Staff a month before the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and then saw many of those he commanded face investigation. He also served four tours of Northern Ireland, including as a paratrooper in the 1970s, a time also under modern scrutiny. Well, he spoke to our reporter, Carla Prater. Where there is genuine evidence of wrongdoing, the due process of law must follow. We are not a banana republic, God forbid, and uh, uh, an army such as ours must operate within the law. It's really as simple as that. Is the effect, though, it has on, on morale and on cohesion within the army? Well, it's when allegations go not to genuine concerns about wrongdoing but are made for whatever political, personal reason. I don't know uh, what motivated Mr. Phil Shiner, but the damage that man has caused, two and a half thousand cases, something like this. Well, that's at least two and a half thousand soldiers. and It'll be more because it won't be individual soldiers each and every time. Then add on their families. I mean, this is a a trail of human concern, worry, misery, which this man has created. I hope, I very much hope, and the signs seem to be there, that this is closed down. It is debilitating. It is an affront to the personal reputations of the soldiers who have been maliciously investigated, I put that in inverted commas, it's an affront to the reputation of the British Army as a whole. It's not the army I recognise. Would you like to see the government doing more then to to crack down? Well, uh, there needs to be somehow Shiner and the wretched mess that he's left behind. That needs to be cleared up and cleared up very quickly. I I think I'm right in saying that uh, the independent historical tribunal has already thrown out uh, a very large number of the cases China was pursuing. Cases, I say cases, there weren't cases because they were made up. With regards to Northern Ireland, the pursuit of of instances there where there's 300 uh, or so civilians... I do believe this continual 
going into the past, uh, I, I accept something like Bloody Sunday, which was such a tragic day that it was bigger than anything else in this way. But digging away um, at something 40 years ago, and it always seems to be basically the other side versus the army rather than the army, you know. <laughs> it's not us saying to whomever, 40 years ago you killed a soldier um, uh, with a sniper rifle on the corner of Springfield Road and you were never charged or whatever. It, that doesn't seem to be happening. So again, I, I think to draw a line, um, and the miracle is that an, a Northern Ireland today is just so different to the Northern Ireland I first knew in 1970 that all the agony, all the blood and the treasure it is made worthwhile by, we hope, a stable, peaceful and democratic Northern Ireland. That was General Sir Mike Jackson speaking to Carla Prater. And Chris, of course, he has, you know, direct first-hand experience of the Troubles. I'll tell you why Mike Jackson, General Mike Jackson, uh, is so sensitive about Northern Ireland. Uh, generals always sound something quite generals. Uh, he was, though, the adjutant at Bloody Sunday. He was also company commander, I think, to para at Warren Point, where 14 para, uh, where 14 British soldiers were killed in a bl uh, blown-up culvert uh, by the IRA. Uh, the lawyers were round, and he is so sensitive to how his soldiers mm. were vulnerable at that point, and it's still in his voice today. This is BFBS Sigrep. From the peak of 10,000, there are now around 500 British troops in Afghanistan, and that number was expected to fall over time. But could we, in fact, be about to send more troops to the country? It's under consideration, according to Armed Forces Minister Mike Penning, who's recently been in Kabul. There's a possibility that we might uplift um, because of what we're being asked to do. Um, I've not been formally asked, but I might as well be honest with the committee that that's a possibility. Um, the two stars, uh, generals that I, from the American administration, when other, they were committed to being there. And I met with the defence, uh, my counterpart in the Afghan government, and assured him that we were, were there and uh, continuing to do the job. Well, that was Mike Penning talking to the Defence Select Committee this week. Well, British troops in the country are training and mentoring local forces as well as providing security for key figures. Mr Penning admits the situation in Afghanistan remains difficult and he admitted he may have been a little too open with the information. It was an assumption that I made other conversations with the coalitions and I, sorry, but one of the things I always want to do is be as open as possible. So if I'm sitting here thinking I may have to do an uplift there may be a possibility. So I'm probably going to get shot when I get back. He didn't. Uh, let's speak to Doug Beatty, a former army captain who served three tours in Afghanistan. Good to speak to you today, Doug. Are you surprised? Hello. Hello. Are you surprised at talk of an increased British deployment or the possibility of that to Afghanistan? Well, it's speculation, but I'll be honest with you, I'm not really surprised. I, I think the, uh, the the military who's there now, and it's my own regiment, the Royal Irish Regiment, who are actually doing the job in, in Kabul at the moment, uh, I think they always look at the capacity and the capabilities that they're being asked um, to, to produce, and, and, and their levels may change accordingly. Uh, if we look at 
how uh, unstable the country is at times. I think they have to be able to be pragmatic. And if somebody says we need a, a capability here, that they should be able to produce that. So it doesn't surprise me that we may have to put more troops in there. But I don't think we're talking about going back to what we had uh, mm. du- du- during during the, 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 the major conflicts. Uh, there and, and the major Herrick operation. I know it's speculation, but how many people do you think we could be talking about? Well, at the moment, we, I, I think we've got half a battle group there. I mean, half of One Royal Irish are, are deployed there at the moment, so um, th- that's up to 500. Um, but, but, you know, you're maybe looking at maybe a, another 100, maybe 150, maybe the rest of the, the Royal Irish battle group could could deploy uh, to help with mentoring. I think mentoring will be um, frontline mentoring, it'll be mentoring that's pretty much what we're doing in Iraq at the moment mm. um, well back from the front line um, training, teaching, helping with logistics uh, and then letting them go off so there's no combat role uh, envisaged I certainly can't see us going back to a combat role mm. Christopher Lee is listening to this as well uh, Christopher, do, do you get a sense of how well the British involvement is going in Afghanistan at the moment? Yeah, it's it. put it in the context, in fact as Doug has just done we're not talking about sending in a division or a brigade, we're talking about jobs. Don't think in terms of numbers of people or is it are the Brits going back to Afghanistan. Think in terms of what jobs are there to do. You can cha- uh, train people in IED uh, dismantling, for example. You need only 50 guys to go and do that. Or you can put them in somewhere else where you've got a, a battalion less one company. Small, small parcels, mm. but doing, doing very important jobs. So you pick the job, or they say, can you help in that? And that's what you send. You don't send numbers. Uh, Doug, you, you mentioned that, that you, it's your old regiment that's out there, guys from there. What are they telling you about how it's going? Well, well, it's very different from the last time we were there. I mean, the Royal Irish did three tours of Afghanistan, and I was with them uh, each time. Uh, and it was pretty kinetic, and it was pretty hard work. And I think it's very different now. Um, they're doing a lot of force protection. It's routine stuff. It's pretty quiet. Yes, there's a lot going on, but they're, they're not facing up the enemy like they were once before. So in many ways, have been before, we'll be looking at it and saying it's quite tame and quite boring. Those who have never been before will see it's still quite exciting. It's a new country. Mm. Um, so I think it's just a new role and I think they're, they're getting to grips with it. How do you think the public would react if there was, I mean, even if it were to be a small uplift, an uplift nonetheless to Afghanistan? I, I think Christopher has just said this exactly right. It's, we're talking about jobs talking about small packets, was talking about small numbers. Uh, I think it will go in, not deliberately, but I think it will go in under the radar. I don't think there'll be too much noise about it. I think, you know, the commander on the ground will ask for what he needs and, and, and government will assess that and they will give him the forces that he needs to do the job that he, he, he needs to do. So I, I don't think it'll be a big issue, to be honest. All right. Uh, Doug Beatty, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today. Um, a yep. final thought uh, this week, Christopher, the disbanding of the White Helmets. Now, this is the Royal Signals motorcycle display team. It's toured the world for the last 90 years, showcasing the skills of the British military. Uh, but with the signals now focused on cyber and digital communications, a celebration of their predecessors' work, motorbiking messages to and from the front line, is drawing to a close. Um, is it the right time for them to go? Hey, what's this about showing the British c- capability? I mean, some guys on motorbikes. I mean, anybody who lives Ambassadors, where, nonetheless. You know, we've got a, a little place down on the coast at Rye. And on a Sunday morning, there's something like 1,200, 1,400 motorbike guys down there, including some that are in the white, white helmets. And these are considered as heroes. And it's rather like the Red Arrows. It doesn't sort of say there's the RAF's capability to get into targets in, let's say, Syria. What it does actually says, that's what we expect. It's quite spectacular. It makes people feel, feel, feel warm. But where do you stop? 
Do you stop the uh, 41 gun salute for the Queen in Hyde Park by the uh, King Street, the Royal Horse Artillery? Do you go along and, and look at the OTA lot, the, the Honourable Artillery Company, and say, put down your pikes, uh, put on some sensible uniforms, you will not be doing gun salutes anymore from the, from the tower? Why keep the horses and not the bikes? Uh, well, the horses, actually, people like horses, don't they? Yeah, I, I do, very uh, much. You don't, do I'm, you? Right. Uh, but, uh, and but bikers the point, like bikes, though. <laughs> bikers like bikes, but people are not impressed with bikes anymore. Aren't because, they? No, they're not, because anybody can have a bike, anybody can ride a bike. You never had more bikes on the roads. They're commonplace. What are not commonplace is that wonderful sight of a troop, uh, a Royal Horse Artillery troop, coming out of barracks... Uh, towing the 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 twenty five pounders, um, all being standing there perfectly still mm. on horse cars during a parade, you don't need to get rid of that. It's not just it's just it's not just sort so of. So in sixty years, then a ceremonial sort of procession of computer hackers and the kind of contribution they've made. I think it's marvellous. I can imagine it, can't you? <laughs> you can. All walking down <laughs> Whitehall. <laughs> all walking down. Uh, if you don't mind the advertisement, all walking down Whitehall with their iPads open. <laughs> Uh, and and do you know what they'd be doing? They'd have the Google map up to make oh, sure they got they make that's sure they too, got to horse That's two adverts horse you've done already there. Uh, seriously though, a, a farewell to the five. I don't even actually know when they're actually stopping, but uh, it is their final display season, isn't it? It is. It mm. is. I mean, it, they'll miss it, uh, or will they? Because the guys that do it, they do nothing else. That is all we have time for today. Thanks to all of today's guests and to you, Christopher, of course, as well. Don't forget, uh, you can get in touch. We're on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. And make sure you never miss an episode. Search online for the SITREP podcast. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabay, I'll speak to you again the same time next week. But from all of us, for now, bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.